Hello and welcome to The Cutting Room, the movie show from All the Right Movies. I'm John and with me today it's Matt. Hello. And Westy. Hello. Westy, last time, George Lucas, yeah. this uh-huh. time with the branded cap, Spielberg. Spielberg, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I am the police, I want to keep you on your toes. <laughs> Directing your own film called All the Right Movies. <laughs> <laughs> really pretentious title for a film that <laughs> well obviously yeah it's, it's, yeah, it's a trilogy <laughs> well this time around on the show we're looking at a film that was once a flop then a cult classic and now I think it's probably just now now classic yeah I would say so yeah you've got to be fucking kidding John Carpenter's <laughs> The Thing yeah Before we do that though, just to let everybody know that All The Right Movies is a YouTube channel and what you're listening to now is the audio podcast version of the latest episode of our YouTube show called The Cutting Room. The original video version, along with many other episodes and videos, is available on YouTube, so please head over to our channel to watch and subscribe. We actually started out as a podcast and you can access our full archive of over 120 podcast episodes on our website alltherightmovies.com or by signing up to become an All The Right Movies patron at patreon.com forward slash alltherightmovies. Patrons also gain access to loads of other benefits as well including an exclusive video episode of The Cutting Room every month chosen by and created specifically for our patrons. So, as you can see, there's loads from all the right movies to keep you busy, so please check out YouTube and Patreon. But for now, it's back to the film. So, why are we talking about it, Matt? Well, we've all lived through a pandemic where we couldn't be sure who had this virus, who could reach us. <laughs> we wanted to isolate from each other. No one can afford to put the heat on, so we're all freezing. And frankly, nobody can trust anybody now and we're all very tired (laughs) no better time to talk about this film um this one's really important to me it was the first film i was ever properly obsessed with i can still remember watching it for the first time i was far too young but despite being young i I wasn't scared only because i was so like amazed by what i was watching and i can still remember going to bed that night just thinking about it and ever since then i've thought there's nothing like it before been nothing like it since it's the film I've owned the most physical copies of. I've had it on VHS, then DVD, then Blu-ray. Right. I don't have a 4K telly, but I might still just buy it on 4K anyway, just because <laughs> it's what I do with this film. Laserdisc. Uh, <laughs> Laserdisc. I'll get the Laserdisc. No one watches Laserdisc anymore, but I'll have that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fair to say I'm a big fan of it and looking forward to getting into it on this. Yeah, same for me. I mean, I didn't see the thing as a teenager. Like, I think you probably did, Matt. I was mm-hmm. well into my 20s, but... 80s oh, wow. science fiction about a weird alien is right up my street so i was a fan from pretty much the very first watch i like john carpenter i think we all do here so it's good to be talking about yeah. him we've also yeah. got kurt russell who's great kurt russell's hair which is great in this yeah. film <laughs> dean cundy his dp ennio morricone with the scores so some big names to chat about and the special effects work on display here all practical obviously as it's 1982 yeah. that's so bonkers it still blows me mind now when i say yeah. it and there's theory after theory after theory out there about just about every aspect of the thing, that final scene especially. So mm. we're going to resolve that once and for all, right? Well, hopefully. Mm. See what happens. Give it a go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if not, we'll just wait here a while. Yeah. <laughs> and Westy, what about you in the thing? Well, I mean, it's just a Stone Cold classic, isn't it? I mean, you cannot argue against it. It's absolutely fantastic, and it's just endlessly watchable. It's just brilliantly entertaining, so confident, so accessible. 
there's 12 characters and you kind of relate to everybody. It doesn't seem like it's a mess. It doesn't seem muddled. There's loads of space. It uses the claustrophobia really well. And this was the ultimate film for me when you, if you'd been on a night out and you come home, you've got a kebab, you've still got a can in the fridge. <laughs> oh, I'm putting the thing on. Why not? And it, it works out normally better than the night out, if I'm honest with you. Absolute classic. This is one of them films where you, like, you can just put it on, you just go, yeah, I'm just entertained from the first opening shot, from the first minute, all the yeah. way through. It's just fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Great. Well, everyone should just wait there while see what happens as we get into it on The Thing. Let's do it. In remote Antarctica, a group of American research scientists take in a sled dog and, after discovering it's a shape-shifting extraterrestrial looking to assimilate them, they become embroiled in a fight for their lives as fear and paranoia run riot. That's the actual do. real plot. It's oh, brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant, isn't it? What a pitch. <laughs> Directed by John Carpenter and written by Bill Lancaster, The Thing is a remake of The Thing from Another World from 1951, produced yeah. by the Terman Foster Company, distributed by Universal, and in the main cast. Kurt Russell as R.J. McCready, Wilford Brimley as Blair, T.K. Carter as Knowles, David Clennon as Palmer, Keith David as Childs, Richard Dysart as Copper, Charles Hallahan as Norris, Peter Maloney as Bennings, Richard Masseur as Clark, Donald Moffat as Gary, and Thomas G. Waits as Windows. Wow. Well done. You didn't take a breath there. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of actors. Too many. Too many. Too many. Too many. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So how the cutting room works is that we analyse the movie by breaking it down into its key filmmaking components, in this case the direction, the writing, the cast, the visuals, and our own individual highlight, and then we'll each give the film a final score out of 10. Yeah. So up first then, we're talking about The Thing's director, it's John Carpenter. John Carpenter had already built quite the name for himself by 1982 by directing acclaimed low-budget films like Assault on Precinct 13, Cult Horror The Fog, and Escape from New York, and yep. one of the most influential horror films ever made in Halloween. Yep. And all of a sudden, he found himself handed a $30 million budget to make the thing. Big, big bucks. Yeah, mm -hmm. big bullshit. How did he deal with that budget, Westy? I think he did fantastic with that budget, to be fair. I think this film looks incredible. I think it's... He's so good with actors, and this film shows that, how he commands everybody, yeah. how everyone's got a personality, and he's so in charge of that. The film itself has got a personality. The location's got a personality. To me, this is just pure John Carpenter. It's just one of his kind of signature films, and I think it's right up there with the best that he's done. I think it's just fantastic. He's just a, the master at building tension out of nothing, out of pretty much, you know, just just human relationships and the way that this is this is filmed and shot with the, the confidence that I said at the top, just with that ability. It's yeah. just brilliantly entertaining and it shouldn't be. It should be horrific. It should be disgusting. You should want to turn this off when you first see what the thing does to the dogs. And it is pretty disgusting, though. To be it's, it's absolutely <laughs> rank. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, it's fairly unwatchable in place. You can't be like, I'll sit and have me tea and watch this thing at the same time. Like, you need to be after well, you a night out. Watch it. Kebab, yeah. <laughs> You're like, that's all, it's all right. That makes sense now. <laughs> but it's just one of them things where it just makes it so engaging and just so watchable and just so scary, but at the same time, you can't turn away from it. And that's what John Carpenter's so good at. I think that's what he did with Halloween. You can't stop watching it. You want to, but you just can't turn away from that tension that he builds. And he just creates such an atmosphere. And he's just a genius at creating an atmosphere and building worlds. And he does so here. It's just incredible work. It's an incredible direction and just a, a flawless film, I think. Yeah, well, John Carpenter himself says the thing is his 
favourite film of his. And mm-hmm. if it's good enough for GSC, it's definitely good enough for me. Oh, I absolutely agree absolutely. with him. The yeah. thing is comfortably my favourite Carpenter film. This is the one where, like most classic films, but maybe for the first time for Carpenter, he has a lot of talent he can direct and lean on. He's got a yeah. really strong yeah. cast and he gets performances from them. One of Kurt Russell's best ever performances for me. Yeah. He yeah. brings in Rob Bottin to supervise the visual effects. He did an astonishing job that we'll talk yeah. about more. He gets one of the great composers in Ennio Morricone and he comes up with some fantastic music. What's impressive is that Carpenter's working with all these big talents, but the thing still feels like a Carpenter film through and through. Yes. He's still got yeah. the distinct visual flair his best stuff tends to have. The way the camera moves and certain shots in the film feels to me like it's made by the same guy who made Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A criticism I would say that I do have is that this is Carpenter's first time working with a decent sized budget. On a film like this with a big budget, there's always going to be action. And it needs to be mm-hmm. impressive and spectacular when it comes. And I think compared to the other big action director names, Carpenter is found wanting a little bit here. The big, you think? Big, yeah, the big action sequence here comes at the end of the film where McCready takes on the thing in a one-on-one yeah. fight. It's basically the same sequence or the same idea as the end of Aliens where Ripley fights the alien queen. <laughs> But yeah. the difference in quality between them is massive for me. I and Jim shows Carpenter how it's done. I'm on a much smaller budget as well. He only had $18 million in total. Mm-hmm. But Carpenter's not known as the master of action. He's known as the master of horror. And all that yeah. stuff in the thing, the paranoia building, the tension you go cook glass with, the horrific moments when the thing attacks, all fantastic, all orchestrated by Carpenter. So in all, he did a brilliant job. His best film, no question for me. And one of the all-time great remakes, I think, as well. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. And Matt, I know you love it, so go on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, for me, this film, it feels like it's the culmination of something for Carpenter. It feels like this film is the one he's been building to his whole career. Yeah. And he has made brilliant brilliant films before this. Obviously, Halloween is in there, mm. Escape from New York. But every single element of the thing is so sharp and so controlled and so well thought through. You know, it, it says quite a lot that he can tell Ennio Morricone what his score should sound like, which is like this. He make it sound like me. Yeah. You know, that takes some doing to yeah. say that at Morricone. And he does it. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't sound like a Morricone score at all, this film. No, not at all. Brilliant. No, not one bit of it. And it's a film, I think, on one level, it feels so cinematic and it feels so widescreen. But on the other hand, it's also really confined yeah. and claustrophobic, which Carpenter pulls off brilliantly. And we'll talk about Dean Cundy later, what he brings to it. But there's elements like the fact that Carpenter shoots so many of these interior shots with a ceiling in full view, yeah. which sounds an odd thing to highlight, but that ed- adds to the sense of being trapped. Yeah. There's no way out of this mm. film because there's no way out of the frame. That's the detail which Carpenter's thought it through. And you add into that all those corridors that just stretch off into darkness, the way the camera prowls. Like, the camera doesn't move around the characters. It stalks the characters mm-hmm. in this film. Mm-hmm the way he composes his shots so the characters are nearly always surrounded by lots of negative space where something could just pop up. All quite small touches by themselves, but the cumulative effect is incredible, and it's why this film feels so paranoid. And I also like how he avoids the less is more, more approach. I mean, we talked about Alien there. In Alien, you see it for, what, maybe three minutes, I think, in total, across yeah. two hours? Yeah. In, in Jaws, you barely see the shark <laughs> yeah. for a different reason. But here, Carpenter's <laughs> like, no, I'm going to really show you this creature. And he, and he does. He doesn't back away from showing it. And I love that yeah. about it. So from a tech, technique point of view, I think it's flawless. I think he gets believable and really edgy performances from the cast. You can tell every single actor was bought into his vision here. Everyone's on board. But maybe what's most impressive, and we've mentioned it already, for a film that is so overwhelmingly bleak and downbeat, 
it's so watchable. Yeah. I think you said it, John, you should only want to watch this once and never want to put yourself yeah. through it again. But as soon as this film finishes, you think, you know what? I could watch that again yeah. right now from the <laughs> yeah. beginning. It's yeah. so <laughs> rewatchable. So what he does here, I think like if Carpenter was put on this earth for one purpose and one purpose only, it's to make this film. That's, <laughs> that's how good a job he does. Nice. Imagine if Rob Bottin had done the shark in Jaws. He's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. coming out of the water, splitting in half and just being shark teeth within itself. Fucking terrifying. <laughs> That'd be amazing. You would have seen more of it then. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Well, interesting story about the thing is that the studio's first choice as director wasn't John Carpenter. It was another director known for horror movies, though. Do you know who it mm, was? Okay. I don't. I did know. I've forgotten. It was Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper, yeah. Who oh, directed okay, right, Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre in 1974. Universal yeah. already had him under contract, so that's why they wanted him. And Hooper did write a screenplay. It's a good job it didn't get made, though, because I think his reputation as a horror movie legend might have been ruined by the sounds of it. Because... Right. In his screenplay, the alien in Hooper's version didn't shapeshift or assimilate hosts. It just ate them. So right. changing right. it to be less original there and worse than what Carpenter yeah, yeah. did. Yeah. The main character was called the Captain, and the film was about his obsessive mission to find and kill the thing, which sounds very Captain Ahab, Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And tonally, Hooper wanted this film to be a horror comedy with lots of slapstick humour. <laughs> I mean, I've not read the... I've not read those drafts, but apparently there was a scene in there where a character gets caught by the thing after literally slipping on a banana skin. Really? <laughs> which, which sounds terrible. No! And Lawrence Terman, the producer on the thing, said it would have been one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> That's a kind of that yeah, I want to see it. I want to see it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So, as well as that, all the right movies also have a Patreon account if you weren't aware. And one of the benefits of being an ATRM Patreon is that we'll answer your questions on the show. And we have a question now from one of our Patrons, Ryan Shippo. Hey guys, got a question for you. Is The Thing John Carpenter's best movie? If not, where would you rank it? Ryan gave us a little bit of a helping hand there with his DVDs all lined up, but other classic Carpenter films include yeah. Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China. I've already said that I think The Thing is Carpenter's best, but what do you think, Westy? Where's The Thing stack up? It's Yeah, it's his best for me. It's it's number one, I'd say, because I love all, I love all of these films, but I'll put this by the how many times I've watched them, so the rewatchability rate of it. So I'll put The Thing first, Big Trouble in Little China second, um, and I'll put... Assault on Precinct 13, third. Lovely. That's a night in. <laughs> <laughs> or a night out, then a night in. <laughs> and Matt, what about you? Yeah, I'm in agreement, um, which says a lot considering how good his other films are. Mm. Halloween is a masterpiece, but some of the performances drag that down a bit. That's not the case here. The Fog's very scary, but it's quite thin in terms of writing. Again, mm. not the case here. Um, Escape from New York, that's loads of fun, iconic character, but it's just not as rewatchable as this one is. Mm -hmm. And Big Trouble, it's hilarious, I love it, but it's all over the place, that film. It's just not a complete focus that this <laughs> one does. Excellent. So, yeah. <laughs> it is excellent, yeah, it's yeah. all over the place. Of course it uh, is. This one, it's so focused, so tightly done, it's his number one without question. Yeah. So, John Carpenter, then, great work on the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Career yeah. best. The screenplay for The Thing was written by Bill Lancaster, and to this point, Bill had two screenwriting credits. The bad news bears, 
and the bad news bears go to Japan. There's chocolate all over this ball. Classic. <laughs> he had a famous dad as well, didn't he? Do you know who that was? Bert Lancaster? Bert. He was the son of Burt Lancaster, the huge oh, Hollywood right. star of the 50s. I thought yeah. that was going to be a bit of a trick question. <laughs> yeah, that not the same last name. Well, I'll say <laughs> Bette Midler or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Julie Andrews. <laughs> well, when it came to writing the thing, Lancaster had two sources to use as inspiration. The B-movie The Thing from Another World from 1951 and also the novel yeah. on which both movies are based. That's Who Goes yeah. There, a 1938 novella written by John W. Campbell Jr., Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the thing, then, how good or bad do we think the writing is, Matt? I think for a straight up genre film like this, I think it's excellent writing. Mm-hmm. And there's two aspects stand out for me. First of all, we mentioned that huge cast list—twelve characters in this. Loads yeah. of films like under two hours long, and it still manages to give them all very distinct personalities, which is no mean yeah. feat for that many. And after about half an hour, you are totally on board with all these characters and you know who they are and you understand the hierarchy at this outpost so gary is commander b you can see nobody respects him nobody mm-hmm. really believes in him you can see everyone implicitly just goes to mccready for leadership even though he doesn't want it and you can see you know this character has a grudge with that character these two are best friends everyone thinks windows is the weak link etc it's very efficient it's very cleanly done and one bit that stands out for me is McCready's first scene where he's playing yeah. chess against his computer, yeah. which yeah. when he loses, he just pours the whiskey in it to blow it up. And that tells you everything you need to know about him. And it foreshadows the end of the film because mm-hmm. rather than accepting defeat, he'd rather destroy the computer, which he does at yeah. the end of the film. Rather than accept defeat, he's going to burn yes. that base to the ground and freeze to death yeah. rather than let the thing win. It's, it's brilliant writing. Yeah, yeah. Bad loser, isn't he? McCready. Yeah, oh, he's really bad. Yeah. I like to think that was his very first game on that computer. And he's just knacked it straight away. He hasn't tried more than once. Yeah. <laughs> Cheating bitch. Yeah. Back in 1982 as well, that must have been worth $20,000. Yeah. Been... <laughs> really, yeah. really expensive. Yeah. Cheating bitch. Yeah. I'd win now, though. Um, but the second thing in that writing, it's all the layers of ambiguity and the unanswered questions in this film. You know, when exactly do Palmer and Norris get assimilated? When does it get to Blair? What's up with McCready shredded Long Johns? What happens to Fuchs? Who picks up Gary's keys after Windows drops them and gets to the blood bags? None of these are answered, and mm. I think it would be a much weaker film if any of them actually were. I love all those unanswered questions. That's probably why you come back to this film again and yeah. again. So for a film that is full of gore and blood and special effects, I think the writing is really strong and quite possibly the most underappreciated aspect of it. Yeah, I also think the writing's very good on the whole. It's got a strong story, taken from the novella, of course. And it is the kind of story we've seen before. A group of people in a confined space and an alien killing them one by one. Just three years before this, we had Alien telling the same story, basically. So we've seen it before, but Bill Lancaster adapts it well. There's not that much depth to the characters in terms of backstory or knowing much about them, but it does still work. I think that's testament to Carbon and the cast, more than the writing, probably. But Lancaster does okay with the characters, I think. Where the writing really stands out, though, to me anyway, is the theme of paranoia that runs from the end of the first act right until the final seconds of the film. Once the scientists know the creature can look like them, there's this undercurrent of tension and mistrust because they don't know who the thing is. And that's an outstanding concept and it powers every scene once the film gets going. This was the early 80s, obviously, where the AIDS epidemic was all over the news. So the idea of not being able to tell who's infected just by sight, only blood tests can reveal it. We see that in the thing. 
America was in a place where it was coming off the back of communism, McCarthyism and the Cold War. And it's been said that the narrative of the thing reflects that as well. The idea of an enemy within, that anybody at any time can become the enemy. So it's very much a product of its time, the writing, in terms of reflecting what was going on in the West in the early 80s, which I really like. I think yeah. a slight negative for me in the writing is that it's full of contrivances and things that go unexplained, potholes you could fly a helicopter through. But I think even that's worked in the film's favour because now there's so many theories out there all over the internet about all different aspects of it that's still being talked about now. So positive on the whole, slightly mixed bag in some of the writing for me, but the writing is good, but not exactly solid in terms of the story and character. And it's a theme of paranoia and reflections of the early 80s Western society where I think it really stands up still to this day. Yeah, I think them eighties themes and the paranoia and the you know the, the Western like the ideologies that were going on then. I think that's brilliant because it's timeless. Yeah, them it this it still exists. There's mm. still paranoia. There's still you can you can take the, the themes within the thing and translate that to pretty much anything. Like Matt did at the top of the the episode, it's like you know, yeah. it's been in a pandemic. Oh, it's like the thing. Yeah. Mm. Oh, the Cold War. Yeah, it's like the thing. You know, so it's like. It's one of them things that does. It's it's universal and it's kind of an evergreen concept. It's always gonna it's always gonna be there because we are as naturally as human beings are paranoid, and you know worried about trust issues and you know, you never really know anybody and that always works in its favour. And I do like that it has these plot holes. I do I kind of like that. It makes us mm. feel like they've written it, but written it without any kind of. It's not pretentious. No, it's, it's not. just. It's 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 very honest to what it's what what it wants to say, and it's not doing it in a pretentious way to set up all these kind of twists and turns. I think they just wanted to tell the story and tell it in a entertaining fashion and quite quickly, so that you weren't bored. And I think doing that, you are going to miss out on plot holes. If this has been three hours long, I mean, if you look at something like The Hateful Eight, that's just drags on, and it's just a complete carbon copy of this film anyway, from the paranoia point of view and the people in there. There's eight characters in that, and that just seems contrived. That just seems overblown. This has got twelve, and it seems quite thin. Mm. And I think that is down to the writing and how it, it it's you know portrays each character and each character's journey is a small arc, but everyone kind of gets one. And I think that's really really great from Lancaster to do that. And I'm sure Carpenter read this and just thought, I know exactly how to film this. That's exactly what I want to do. And a lot of the plot holes are visual. A lot of the plot holes are in the dialogue and the writing, but I just think they were putting this together at such a pace because they were excited about making it that, yeah, then plot holes exist, but that means it translates to the audience and it's exciting for us to watch it, and that's what makes it great. Yeah, one of the things I do like is how it's never really fully explained how the thing works. We never... Yeah, we no, don't have no idea what it is. And my favourite thing about that is when, when someone is the thing, do they know that they're the thing? Are they like a clone of the real person? They think they are the real person until the thing sort of takes over them. I don't know. It's it's quite an interesting concept. I don't think that was the idea. I think it's not been 100% thought through and that's led to that, which is a contrivance that I do like. Yeah, yeah it's great. I mean, I don't know if it's just like a little kind of amoeba kind of thing that just floats around and lands on people i mean you see the spaceship crash at the start but i like to think the thing took over whatever that life form was exactly yeah and it's just a tiny little thing that just kind of cribs about it's nothing it's just like it's not threatening at all until it assimilates something and it's trying to assimilate that the strongest or the uh, the most dominant species it can find and then it finds man and it's like wow this will do yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) what i mean so a lot's going on in the writing then, and most of it very good, you think? Oh, I think so, yeah. Yes, very much so. The cast of The Thing has an ensemble feel. Young, inexperienced actors, a few wise old heads in there, one bona fide movie star, and Jed, the greatest actor in history. 
Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> the cast list is too big to cover them all in detail, unfortunately. So what we're going to do is talk about some of our favourites. So, yep. Westy, who are you going to talk about? As if who I couldn't guess. Think? Who do you think? <laughs> big RGM, the big McCready. Not Paulus, is it? <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, yeah, the the big man himself, Kurt Russell as RJ McCready. What a character! What a performance! What a wardrobe! What facial hair! What hair! Sunglasses! Amazing! Amazing! That look, I mean, I, I've tried so many times to try and achieve that, <laughs> and it doesn't work. And I got I got to a point where it was pretty close, and you just think, well, no, I'm not in the Antarctic, and I'm not a struggling alcoholic helicopter pilot fighting an alien with a flamethrower, so it's not gonna it's not gonna pan out really. I'm gonna take photographs of stuff, um, but yeah, I think I think for me, this is one of Russell's best performances, if not his best performance. He completely mm-hmm. owns this character, and he completely completely owns the film it's so watchable every scene he's in is just it's just heightened by his presence even if he's not saying anything yeah. he's just got that real strong persona that it's it's a it's a masculine persona but it's not an 80s masculine action star persona it's quite flawed it's quite you know he's worried about a lot of things he doesn't know what he's doing a lot of the time he's panicking about things a lot of the time people are looking at him and he doesn't want that role he doesn't want that responsibility but he has it and everyone has you know their attentions with him he turns around oh mac wants a flamethrower right well get it then yeah <laughs> they say yeah. he wants what that, that's it it's, it's just there and it's done but some of the choices he gets to wear some of them wardrobe choices he's got that yosemite sam hat which is just unbelievable I, I, nobody in the world could pull that off apart from kurt russell and the thing yeah. it's just an incredibly difficult thing to give to an actor Right, yeah, it's a serious part of the film, by the way. You've got some serious dialogue here. You actually got to see where the spaceship crashed and you have to pull all that off wearing that sound. And Kurt Russell's like, yeah, not a problem. He's like, oh, by the way, you're going to have to flamethrower one of your compadres who's turned into the thing and he's in the snow. But put a condom on your head and we'll cut a hole out the middle. I absolutely sound, yeah, not a problem. Big goggles on. Yeah, no worries, I'll still look cool. And he pulls it off. It's just an incredible performance, incredibly watchable. And Kurt Russell, for me, is just an incredibly likeable human being. I think he just comes across as a lovely, wonderful man. And this is just a really great, great performance. I just, I, I could just watch it over and over again. And I would hate a sequel to this. I would hate a prequel to this. I would hate any kind of extension on this character because what he delivers in this time frame is absolutely perfect. It's wonderful. Didn't you buy McCready's hat, Westy? I was fucking tempted. (laughs) (laughs) How much was it again? $1,050, I think, something like that. It was handmade. That's how much we're selling those caps for. Yeah. (laughs) If anyone's interested, get stuck in. If you're interested, yeah, I bought this instead. (laughs) Imagine Russell wearing this, though. Unbelievable, that. I can make that that happen. I've got Photoshop. I'm not afraid to use it. I know that Nick Nolte and Jeff Bridges turned the role of McCready down, and Bill Lancaster actually wrote the script thinking of Harrison Ford and Clint Eastwood playing McCready. Right. Mm. I mean, they had no chance of getting either of those then, I don't think, but no. I find it quite easy to imagine Harrison Ford at that time playing McCready. Yeah, so like Empire Strikes Back, though, he's surely, isn't it? Yeah, that's sort of era, yeah, 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 when that caught. <laughs> yeah, and some of the dialogue from Empire Strikes Back would work better in The Thing, and I'll See You in Hell, that works much better in The Thing. <laughs> I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, it I know the Russell by method as well, and regarding that hair and beard, it took him a year to grow it, especially for the thing. 
I mean, worth every minute of that, surely. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Goldie Horn's a very lucky woman. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, Matt, who are you going to talk about? (laughs) Uh, Someone whose hair, unfortunately, is not as good. Um, I think that nobody's is. That's not a problem. Yeah, that's true. Nobody can look there. It's fine. Um, lots of good performances in either. I do really like Keith David. Um, yes. Wilfred Brimley is blessed. Excellent. But yes. I'm going to talk about mm, yeah. David Clennon as Palmer because yeah. I think he's actually a really interesting character because at first he seems like he's going to be the buffoon of the outfit, just sitting around, getting stoned. Everybody overlooks him for anything that needs doing. They're like, just sit down, Palmer. Someone else can do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Spouting out his conspiracy theories, you know. They thought the ink is everything they know. Like, yeah. that's all he's yeah. got to Dropping contribute. Dropping out the skies all <laughs> yeah. over, man. Chariots yeah. <laughs> the guards. That's all he's got to contribute. Yeah, yeah. But then you can also see he's a pain in the arse. You can see he's got some grudge for some reason against Windows, and he won't pair up with him when McCready wants to send them out to look, to look for Blair. And that's yeah. kind of the point of the film, and that because these men can't get over their personal grudges, like Palmer, it makes it easy for the thing to splinter the group and go after them one by one. So Palmer, preferring to wind other people up instead of working together, is key to that thing, which I think is quite clever. Mm-hmm. But it's a great performance, I think, in retrospect, once you know he's been assimilated all along, because you start to wonder... Is that shifty behaviour part of its plan, or is that just him? Because you yeah. have that great mm-hmm. scene when Knowles has cut McCready loose at the cabin and left him behind to freeze because he thinks he might be the thing. And the rest of them are standing around debating whether to let McCready back in or not. And Palmer is the one character very keen to let him back in, and he says, well, it's our, ba- it's our best chance to blow him away. Now, is that true, or does he want McCready back in because McCready has also been assimilated, which is obviously another question entirely, and he just wants another mm. version of the thing in there with him. So it's a, it, the thing is, a film where at first glance you think, well, there's not going to be a lot of talk about Shuley in terms of performances apart from Kurt Russell, but a performance like Clennon, you go back to it, knowing what you know, I think there's a lot more going on there than meets the eye. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point as well because the thing itself doesn't seem to work as like it's not a team player, is it? It's very, no. it's very much a solo effort. It yeah. doesn't want to assimilate and then assimilate and then assimilate and have three or four against them all. Yeah. it's always just one, and then it runs away to something else, and then it runs yeah. away to something else. There's a good story yeah. as well about Cobb and some of the cast, including David Clennon, that I like, where Clennon yeah. with Richard Masseur and Thomas Wades, who played Clark and Windows, had an idea about doing a scene where Palmer and Windows would conspire against the other scientists. Yeah. Carbon that didn't like the idea, so said no. And the three actors went into another room and started calling Carbon their names, but their mics were still on. And Carbon, I heard them. <laughs> and and yeah. Clennon said, John was great about it. He came in and said, I heard what you said, guys, and my reasons for not wanting to do the scene still stand. You're right, though. I am a prick. <laughs> <laughs> great, John Carbon, isn't great he? Guy. Everyone loves yeah, him. Yeah, he's great. He's he's fantastic. fantastic. What a man. <laughs> We can't go into all the casting detail, which is a real shame, but they're yeah. all good. It's a real ensemble piece. And Kurt Russell, one of his best. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. This episode of All The Right Movies is sponsored by A Breath Of Fresh Air. A Breath Of Fresh Air is a music radio show that plays on over 150 radio stations across the globe, and it's now a podcast. Join host Sandy Kay, a veteran journalist and broadcaster in Australia, as she spins classic tunes and interviews the music stars of the 60s, 70s and 80s. She also takes requests from listeners who want to hear their favourite, often long-forgotten artists. The show takes people back to the days of our youth to catch up with those who made the soundtrack of our lives. 
Listen to A Breath of Fresh Air on all major podcast platforms and at abreathoffreshair.com.au. The link for the site is in the description for this show. Thanks to A Breath of Fresh Air for sponsoring this episode of All the Right Movies. Attention podcast listeners and YouTube watchers. I'm Logan, the host of Mostly Superheroes, a weekly pursuit for the world's best stories with an emphasis on live-action superhero stuff. Every week, join me, PC Mike, The Giggler, Scotty Scoop, and Carrie as we talk MCU, DCU, books, TV, movies, and more. MostlySuperheroes.com is where you want to be. Watch us on YouTube, listen where you get your podcasts, and we'll see you Monday, Sunday on Patreon. Enjoy the rest of the show. John Carpenter has a reputation for being a director with a lot of visual flair and had a couple of important collaborators on the thing to help him achieve that. Director of photography Dean Cundy was working with Carpenter for the fourth time and special effects supervisor Rob Bottin was back after working with Carpenter previously on The Fog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how does the thing look, Westy? It looks incredible. It looks great. It's exactly how I want it to look, which is... One of them rare occurrences where you just watch a film and I just I'm never bored by the visuals of this. Mm. It's just beautifully done. It's dark, but you see everything. It's so vast, but it's so claustrophobic at the same time. The camera moves exactly how you want it to and when you want it to. The, even the opening shot, you would expect it to just be this real static vista of these mountains. And it's handheld. It's really shaky. Mm. It's really You're on edge immediately. It's just all of these different techniques that Carpenter and Cundy put into this film where they make it so cinematic but at the same time it feels so grounded and it even feels quite low budget from this point of view it feels like they've just turned up to this place and this is how it looks it doesn't Mm. feel lit it doesn't feel like it's there's a a lot of production value and that's the where the main element of production value comes in when you kind of tell it's been lit you kind of tell it's been built you kind of tell it looks like that you feel like this is just a place and you are stuck there and I think that's really, really fantastic. I really rate Dean Cundy, and he's one of them cinematographers that doesn't get mentioned enough. I mean, the guy did Jurassic Park. He did Back to the mm-hmm. Future. He did Death Becomes. He did Escape from New York and Halloween with Carpenter. He did The Fog as well. He's just an incredible cinematographer who's just one of them people who just sit and listen to John Carpenter and go, yeah, I can do that. You know, and the way he lights the the effects work by Boutine as well, some of it's really brightly lit, so you see everything when it's on the table getting examined. But then when that dog's head splits open... You would expect that to be a lot darker. It's dark, yeah. but you see everything. You can still yeah. see everything. And he just kind of pays homage to how well that looks. You can tell him and Bortine have sat next to each other and just been like, how do I like this? How do you want me to like this so it looks the best? I want to make your work look the best it can look. And I want to make the actors look the best they can look. He wants to make everything look the best it can, but at the same time, make it almost unwatchable and uncomfortable which is a, a mean feat and one that he, I think he pulls off. It's just incredible work here. And one of them films, I'll say, it's it's one of my favourite visually, definitely. Yeah, there's loads of shots of like long corridors and the camera creeping down them to heighten feelings of tension and paranoia. Yeah. Wide shots of the snowy wasteland gives a sense of how isolated the scientists are. I think the film has quite a muted colour palette for the most yes. part, lots of browns and greys, which was yeah. surely intentional so that when the thing shows up, it's like an eye-popping moment and that yeah. works fantastically well. The lighting is great as well. The scenes where it's lit by like the blues or the reds of flares. I think visually this is, yeah, up there with pretty much anything Dean Cundy's done. I think he's a big part of why it still stands up so well because it looks so good still. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And Matt, what about you and the visuals of the thing? Well, the thing what Rob Bortine does here is 
something that before you'd never seen anything like this and even after you'd struggle to think of anything really like this maybe maybe some of David Cronenberg's work but not to the extent mm. of what Rob Bourdain does because the way he twists the human body under dog's body into just these like horrendous <laughs> versions of what they used to be you get a chest filled with teeth you get a head <laughs> turning into yeah. ravenous fly traps spindly yeah. little tentacles shooting out of a dog a, a head stretching off a body like it's melting the variety of looks he gets through is staggering because it's never yeah. the same thing twice, which is amazing yeah. when you think about it. And he's only 21 when he does this, yeah. which yeah. just, Crazy. that's just staggering, isn't and he's, it? he's working seven days a week yeah. for a year, <laughs> every day for a year, doesn't have yeah. a day off. No. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I mean, he's a lunatic, isn't he? Both team, oh, when you see him, he's insane. absolute yeah. nutter. He's yeah. brilliant, though. He's so entertaining. <laughs> if you watch him in interviews, yeah, 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 yeah. it's definitely he's who you want on your side. I want you make the thing right and i went oh my god this is fantastic if his effects didn't work or they were rubbish and carpenter had to shoot around them instead of putting them front and center which he does i don't think we'd be talking about it the way that we do um no. i know that they did run a bit out of time for the final creature design which you can kind of tell because it's a bit too stationary mm. it is a little bit yeah. disappointing i think they did try a stop motion version which if you look online you can find pictures of that and that doesn't look great either which is a shame you know i think if he'd had like an extra week i think that final sequence would have been mind-blown instead of just good but everything else incredible I think it was more of a case of the energy than it was the time, wasn't yeah. it? He's kind of well, got yeah, the end of it. He's like, oh, this, is this all right? Please. <laughs> yeah. Please let me go home and sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as well as Bortine's very young age, what's also impressive is that he's not working with an enormous budget or new technologies in the thing. He was working with existing technologies that affects teams had used for years. And just through his passion, his creativity, and being a bit of a maniac, he combines all that to create something we've not seen before wasn't easy for Bortine, like you said, West. He was working 22-hour days at one point, and he yeah. did end up in hospital. Somebody take this guy to the hospital. But the thing is a classic nowadays, and there's no way that it would be without Rob Bortine. No, Incredible. it would be one of them films where would, the performances, I think, would still be that strong, and they would be reacting mm. to something that wasn't necessarily there. And we would be sitting here going, oh, it's an 8 out of 10, but if only them effects were better, yeah. this would be a masterpiece. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But they are that good, yeah. so it is a masterpiece, yeah. Yeah. thankfully. Yeah. Well, talking of Rob Bottin, we have another question from Patreon. Yep. It's on Rob Bottin, and it's from the legendary George Anderson. <laughs> so here's George. Georgie boy. Hey, guys, George here, and here is my question for the upcoming episode on The Thing. Many people rate this movie as Rob Bottin's best special effects work ever, and I would like to know where does ATRM rank this among his amazing body of work? Thanks, guys. Thanks, George. So to give a bit of context, as well as mm. the thing, Rob Bottin has also worked on visual effects for films like The Fog, the comedy film you mentioned, The Howling, a werewolf horror movie. He designed and built the famous suit for Robocop, and he was effects supervisor on Total Recall, among many other films. So yeah. some filmography yeah. he's got. Yeah. But where does the thing rank in all of that, Westy? It's got to be first for me, um, just because of his, his, just his passion and his age and his creativity and he's just 
it's just real desire to create something that hadn't been seen before. I know he did the howling and Stan Winston had to step in on the dog's um, area of the thing because he did the howling and said, one more fucking dog, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm just not doing it. I've had enough. But you can see, like, but the, what he does and what, what he creates from this is just something that's just so original and can't be copied. It can't be replicated because it's pure passion. It's pure creativity. Yeah. You try and replicate this, you go, yep, yeah, that's a thing. Nah, he just owns yeah. it. It's completely original. But for me... Some of his work is the is the work that you don't really notice. I mean, that's the Robocop suit. I mean, as far back as I can remember, seeing that on, on posters on the wall in the video shop, I just think, oh, that's just amazing. On the game cover, you just think, that <laughs> yeah, just looks yeah, so great. brilliant. And it's just the design of that, just the way that turns is just incredible. Total Recall, I'm not a massive fan of, you know, effects-wise. Really? I think you can kind of see through that, and I think you can see it's like the thing, but on, like, 20%. <laughs> But for me, it's his work that you don't really know that he's done. And I think he's a real, real impact on Seven, which a lot of people don't know that he was part of. Yeah. I think the effects work he does on Seven really make that film hit home. So it's the stuff that you don't realise he's done that makes him a, a little bit more important. So I would put Robocop up there, then I'd put The Howling, and then I'll put... Well, sorry, I'll put Rob, um, The Thing, definitely first, Seven, uh, and then The Howling. Lovely. And Matt, what about you? Yeah, total agreement. An absolute master at his craft, and I do think this is the one for me. Other ones I would mention, though, he did one episode of Game of Thrones, but it's a very yes. famous one where Joffrey gets poisoned, which he did the main oh, yeah. death scene, which is pretty yes. awesome. Ah, right. Yeah, he did yeah. that one. The you one can still see episode. that. Even if you've watched it once, you can totally see that. Can. Yeah, 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 that's how good yeah, it is. Same head now, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. It's the only episode he ever did, and it's brilliant. Um, another film he did, Legend, which say what you want about that film. Oh, general, right, yeah, yeah. But Tim Curry is the devil. That yeah. is insane. <laughs> it's that, terrifying. That's terrifying. That that is yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um I would definitely have Robocop in my top three as well. But it has to be this one because as we've said, he nearly killed himself putting this film together because he's <laughs> yeah. working so hard seven days great. a week, sleeping on the set. I don't do that anymore. You know, John Carpenter turned up on set one morning, looked at him and went, You need to go to hospital. You do not look good. <laughs> yeah. You know, he gave himself pneumonia, he had a bleeding ulcer, he was dreaming about these creatures in his sleep. He's working that hard, so... And he probably wouldn't say anything to anybody who no, takes Carpenter totally to come wouldn't. in and say, mate, how am I? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. You're not asking you to do this, <laughs> you're just doing it off your own back. Like <laughs> invincible, don't you? Yeah, exactly. So, Sheely, for that amount of blood, sweat and tears, he literally poured into this work, and it's all up on there on screen. It, it has to be it his is. number one. Yeah, definitely. Also, a visual I love, it wasn't done by Rob Bottin, but I love the logo title at the start of the movie, yeah. how it burns onto the screen. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's taken, I think, from the thing from another world. It's very similar to that, but we've developed yeah. it and made it more, more modern. It looks great. Yeah. So, in terms of the look of the film then, cinematography, visual effects, pretty much world-class across the board? Pretty much world-class. And you know what yeah. the great thing about it is? Nobody turns around and goes, oh, them effects are really 80s. Oh, that looks like an 80s yeah, film. It yeah. doesn't. It looks like we've just found this. It was just recorded in Antarctica <laughs> at some point. We yeah. don't know when. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're watching it. It's t it is yeah. absolutely timeless. It's amazing. Yeah. It is timeless, yeah. We've mentioned some great things about the thing already, but what about our personal highlights? Wesley, you want to go first? Your highlight from the thing? Yeah, my highlight from the thing is we've touched on the scene. It's the blood test scene, yeah. which is just a lesson in tension. It's just fantastic. I watch that, just that one scene over and over again. I think it's just incredible. <laughs> it's so rewarding. 
in yeah. McCready's performance. He's just so confident that he and I'm gonna show you I'll show you what I already know. Yeah. Fucking yes. He's just great. He's just, <laughs> just so confident. But everyone else is so worried at saying that, yeah. that was in yeah. answer to your question that you you asked earlier, Johnny, right? Do they know that they're the thing? And I think from mm. McCready's performance, I think you kind of do. Because yeah. like Palmer's really shifty in this scene, he's really yeah. quiet. Mm. And when he sees his buddy, he's kind of like yes. looking around thinking, oh God, right, is this going to yeah. work? Is it not? And just the way that you do it. I mean, what kind of genius thinks about this, right? I'm going to get you cut your finger, right? So you bleed loads of blood in there, not just a little bit, petri <laughs> yeah. dish full of blood. <laughs> and like when Windows cuts his thumb, if ask me, oh, Wesley, can I have some of your blood? It would be a tiny, tiny little prick there. You can have a little bit, mate. I am not slicing me thumb open. All of it is like, yes. And he's not even, but that would knack for ages. No blasters. Now it would bleed out. You'd be like, oh. None of that. Obviously, they've got bigger fish to fry in the scene, which is fair enough. I've never been in this situation. But I mean, I don't think I'd slice me thumb open. That would just add insult to injury. Let's be fair. But And I'm going to heat the needle up. This Actually, I'm going to strip the wire with a knife and then heat yeah. it up with a flame thrower it couldn't yeah. get any more masculine than that really i mean it's just ridiculous <laughs> but amazing you're just like yeah i'm, I'm bored into this and then you just waiting and you just dismiss palmer all together mm. you're just totally on the back foot and he's like right okay well we'll get to you next bang what the fuck and you're yeah. just thrown into it incredible <laughs> use as well of like the split diopter in this which is really de palmer like in the start mm. of the the start of yeah. the sequence and just kind of everyone's on the same level so it's just <laughs> yeah that sequence for me is incredible it's incredible yeah it is. I mean, this is Carpenter's wheelhouse, isn't it? Suspense, yeah. tension building, and yeah. it all erupts when you're least expecting it to and becomes crazy. It is fantastic. And there's another little use of practical effects in there that I really like. So the effects device that they used to create the blood drumming out of the Petri dish was one long piece. They included the fake hand holding the blood sample, and yeah. they pushed the thing blood sample strand up from that. So between shots, it cuts from Kurt Russell's hand holding the sample to the mm. fake hand. But Carmen, I cuts to the fake hand two shots before the thing's blood jumps out, so we get yes. used to the fake hand, and we yeah, don't right. notice it. Yeah. So that's even more of a shock when it does happen. <laughs> it's really you can clever. tell it's there, though. Now, when you know, when you know, when you, you know. can tell. Yeah, you know. yeah, it's pretty yeah. obvious. But like, if you don't, you just look at his face, and his hands just out of yeah. focus, and the foreground's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. For my highlight, I'm going for the scene that comes just before the blood test involving the yeah. thing, the chest chomper sequence. <laughs> yes, so, brilliant. Also ridiculous. Yeah. Copper defibrillates Norris, or tries to, and when he does, Norris' chest turns into a huge mouth with teeth and it bites Copper's arms off. <laughs> then a neck and head shoot up out of Norris's chest. Then Norris's actual head detaches, drops to the floor, sprouts spider legs, and runs away. I mean, you've got to be fucking kidding, are the only words that fit. And it's yeah. my favourite moment in the film. Yeah. They cop his arms are bitten off. That's fantastic. So unexpected. Yeah. I know how they did that as well was to have a real life amputee wearing a mask of Richard Dysart who plays yes. copper. Right. And they bloody up his amputated arms. And Bob's your uncle. It's all just totally bonkers, but yeah. totally brilliant. Just yeah. classic the thing. You gotta be fucking kidding. And Matt, what's your highlight from the film? Mm. I've got to talk about the ending because I mentioned already how much yes. I love the ambiguity in this film. There's no better illustration that than that ending. And can you imagine yeah. how Carpenter must have felt when he viewed this for the first time in the final edit? That whole sequence of those who just sitting down in that conversation, he must have just been like, oh my God, I've nailed that. What an ending. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Because it's so not perfect. And the great thing is, I'm sure after people watch this, YouTube will recommend them more videos about the thing, particularly yeah. the ending. And it's a great yeah. rabbit hole to go down. 
Yeah, the amazing thing is still in there we've all been there yeah. we're, we're still there, there. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get out the thing is every theory you read about this ending is totally plausible and you know I've got yes. to leave the four options I'm sure you guys have your own theories I mean yeah. me hmm. personally how do I think this ending works my reading is they're both human because right. it, yeah. it just gives the film like one final horrible ironic twist to the knife because they're going to die, they know there's no rescue, they're going to freeze to death, but they can't even be like companions for each other in this moment. They're going to die distrusting each other because, yeah. you know, a child thinks McCready could be the thing, McCready thinks Charles could be the thing, and that's how they're going to die. And there's no need to, they could at least reach out to each other, which is just like, say, really horribly ironic. So that's mm -hmm. my personal take on the ending. But like, say, there's, there's lots of others out there yeah you're right there is there's loads of theories out there i've got a few written down here actually which i'll mention yeah so in bill lancaster's original screenplay he wrote two endings one ended with both mccready and child turning into the thing in front of each other and the other ended with mccready and child being picked up by rescue helicopter the insinuation being that neither was the thing then Carbon, I wanted an ambiguous ending though, and it was actually Kurt Russell who came up with the idea of the two men just staring each other down and fading to black. Nice. There was another ending that was shot by Carpenter, but not used. In that ending, it was revealed that McCready survives, he's picked up by the rescue team, but Child freezes to death, and McCready then passes a blood test, so he's not the thing. Right. Some people say that Child is the thing because you can see McCready's breath, but you can't see Child's. But that's not true because you can see Charles' breath. It's just a yeah. bit more faint than McCready's yeah. is. Pop McCready's backlit, that's why. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe the most popular theories around the bottle of scotch that McCready hands Charles at the end. McCready's been thrown around Molotov cocktails at the thing earlier, and it's said that this bottle's yeah. filled with gasoline, not scotch. Charles drinks it and doesn't react to it being gasoline because he's the thing and doesn't know yeah. the difference. Yeah. And finally, something that Carpenter and Cundy did through the film to subtly signal who is the thing was to put a light gleam into the eyes of people who were human to signify life. And in this final scene, neither McCready nor Childs have got that gleam. But Carpenter did that on purpose, to leave it ambiguous. Right. And for right, me, yeah. that's the point. It is ambiguous. Yeah. I think Carpenter wanted to make the point about paranoia and mistrust, that it's very difficult to get rid of once it's there. And he does this by, at the end of the film, leaving McCready and Childs in the exact same position they were two hours earlier. They yeah. still don't trust each other. And I don't think we're meant to know who's who. Because Carmen doesn't yeah. know. That's the whole yeah. point. Nobody yeah. knows, I think. Yeah, yeah totally. There's another and thing that's about Childs as well, where you've got that shot earlier on where he's standing guard looking out the window and then uh -huh. he goes to something else and it goes back, but Childs is gone and the door's wide open. Some people have pointed out that if you look at the courts on the pegs in the background, in that second yes. shot, there's one less court or they've been moved around. So the theory goes, Childs has been attacked and stripped through his clothing. So he's taken that court off the peg because he needs replacement. Right. And that's why right. child right. child's is the thing. Which I mean it right. could just be a continuity error, to be fair. You know they forgot yeah. to put the, the which quotes, is probably but, more, more plausible. Which probably is more plausible. <laughs> yeah. But that's yeah. that's the thing about the ending, isn't it? There's so many stuff you go, Oh well that, mm. that must mean something. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's great because it spills over as well. If, you, if you're talking to someone about your theory about the thing, which I buy into the Molotov cocktail theory, and yeah. someone else is like, I don't, I don't believe that, I think it's this, then you don't trust them, and it turns into your own <laughs> ending of the thing. <laughs> Can I trust you? Yeah. You don't like oh. And it's just, it, it just lives forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so McCready either is or is not the thing, and Child either is or is not the thing. So... Well, that's it, done and dusted. We'll sort that yeah, right yeah. out for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was the helicopter. The helicopter's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, our highlights, though, some big, big moments in the thing.
Yeah. Yes, easily. So we've done it. We've been through the thing, but we're not going to wait here and see what happens. We're going to give our rankings for the film, should we? Yes. Let's do it. Yeah, let's, let's do, it. do it. Let's do it to you up first. Your summary okay. and score for the thing. Ten. <laughs> um, put this, yeah it is a really short uh, come on I'm, I'm not going to give it anything less i just have this this theory now where if if me dvd collection went up via flamethrower what would i need to buy again immediately and this is kind of up there on the top of the list um in my top 10 that i'd have to own again because it's one of them films that i come back to again and again and Never tire of it. I always love it. It's quite inspiring for me to see this film because I just think this is just pure energy from Rob Bottin. Never took a day off. Real class from Carpenter. Oh, man. Amazing work from Russell. The whole cast is just incredible. The writing's incredible. The whole, the, you know, Dean Cundy pulls out an absolute genius move with how this looks. I, I just adore the film. I think it's fantastic. I recommend it to anyone. And if people don't like the thing, then I kind of like don't really want to speak to them again so <laughs> it's an easy easy 10 for me fantastic film love it well as i've said throughout this episode there's loads of talented people worked on the thing and that shows in spades john carpenter was a driving force of course and it feels like a carpenter film in the best ways possible his mastery of tension and horror is constantly on display and that's always a great sight when he's at his best the cast are excellent especially kurt russell in the lead one of his best performances for me the music from Ennio Morricone, the boom boom, fantastic, yeah. Yeah. and of course the practical effects work we've talked about, masterminded by the lunatic that is Rob Bottin, <laughs> extraordinary, that still yeah. looks great to this yeah. day, 40 years yeah. later. Some plot holes and some lack of characterisation in the writing are a bit of a shame to me, but that representation of paranoia brought on by lack of trust is one of the best examples of mistrust in film, so yeah. for me it's not perfect. But it is one of the great science fiction horror films and my favourite John Carpenter film. So in all, I'm going for 9 out of 10. Fair one. Okay. Is that enough, Westy? Are you going to cut me off? No, no, it's, I mean, it's still big. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> you didn't say you didn't like it. If, if someone goes, oh, I don't like it, then I, I, that's, that's, that's it. 9 out of 10 is fine. That's fine. Don't all right, good. <laughs> and Matt, what about you? Summary and score, please. Yeah, like I said, the top, very important film for me. But I think it's one that stands up even without that nostalgia. I think if anyone came to this for the first time, I think they would still be knocked out by that incredible score by Morricone, those sensational effects by Bottin, really good performances. Yeah. I think it is a very smart and clever script and Carpenter pulling all these elements together in career best work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, to repeat, it's a film I have been obsessed with for as long as I've been obsessed with films. No pun intended, but this film got under my skin from the first view and, and it's been there ever since. I'll never yeah. tire of watching it. I'll never tire of reading people's theories about it. I'll never tire <laughs> of talking about it. it. It quite possibly is my favourite film of all time, so it's clearly wow. going to wow. be a big old flesh-ripping, head-exploding, eye-popping <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted one 10. more. I wanted one more. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> Massive. So yeah. overall, that leaves the thing with 29 out of 30. Huge score. John. So if anyone's not seen it, check it out. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty yeah, good. It's pretty great, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's pretty great. <laughs> Let us know your theories in the and comment section as well. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And that's all we have for this episode of The Cutting Room. I hope it hasn't made you all weird and pissed off. So 
please like, <laughs> subscribe and share this video. That does help us out a lot as we want to grow the channel. Leave some comments with your thoughts on the film to, and any of your theories like Matt says. And if you have any suggestions for any of the films you'd like us to cover, leave a comment. Yep, please do. And to support us in what we do and gain access to extra bonus videos and podcasts, please support us on Patreon as well. Your help and support on there is massively appreciated. And the more support we get, the more videos we can make. That's all for this episode. Nobody trusts anybody and we are all very tired. So yeah. I think we're just going to wait here for a while. See what happens. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you think I should set fire to my room? (laughs) 